Hello, and welcome to Primary Immunodeficiency Questions and Answers. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation, a nonprofit organization that improves the diagnosis, treatment, and quality of life of people affected by primary immunodeficiency. In this episode, we will be answering your questions on navigating flu season. IDF hopes to provide helpful tips and tricks to keep you safe and healthy from the flu. And now, let's begin. Hey everybody, welcome to this episode, Navigating Flu Season. I'm your host, John Boyle. During the fall and winter months, as we begin to bundle up for the cold weather, we also have to remember that it's time to protect ourselves during flu season. Influenza, commonly referred to as the flu, is typically characterized by the onset of fever or feeling feverish, having chills, having aching muscles, a sore throat, and maybe a cough. Now, many people think of influenza as something akin to the common cold. It's really a specific and serious respiratory disease that can result in hospitalization. For people living with primary immunodeficiency, the flu can cause severe complications beyond those just mentioned, such as pneumonia or bronchitis. By taking preventative measures, such as vaccination, members of the PI community can have a decreased chance of being exposed. Herd immunity, in this case, can be created when enough of the general public has been vaccinated. So by people protecting themselves, it also protects us. While the flu may not be alarming to some, it's important to remember that the CDC estimates that influenza has resulted in between 140,000 and 810,000 hospitalizations and between 12,000 and 61,000 deaths annually since 2010. Each flu season is different, and we have to do our part to protect those around us every year. Here with us today is Dr. P.J. Maglione. Dr. Maglione is an assistant professor of medicine in the section of pulmonary, allergy, sleep, and critical care medicine at the Boston University School of Medicine. He is a physician scientist with expertise in the clinical care of primary immunodeficiencies and runs a laboratory in the pulmonary center at Boston University Medical Campus. Along with this, he is an attending physician at Boston Medical Center, where he focuses on the diagnosis and treatment of primary immunodeficiencies. Dr. Maglione, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, John. It's a real pleasure for me to be here. Um, And this is my first podcast, so I'm very excited to be a part of this. (laughs) Well, uh, we are glad that uh, uh, we could have a friend of the pod on the pod here. So, well, to start... Can you give us a brief description of the flu or influenza? Beyond what I mentioned in the introduction, what are some of the common symptoms associated with the flu? And maybe what are some of the more serious ones that you as a clinician are probably going to be more concerned about? Sure, John. Uh, Well, so flu is caused by the influenza virus. It's a viral infection, and it's a virus that's quite notorious for its ability to alter its genome. And so you have these uh, seasonal outbreaks uh, year after year. Um, the most typical symptoms are fever, muscle aches and pains, uh, and you know respiratory symptoms are a major component here, cough and other respiratory symptoms, uh, as well as a general sense of uh, malaise is, is quite frequent. Um, these are the more, most common symptoms. You also asked about some of the more serious ones. Well, we'd be you know, concerned about um, involvement of the uh, nervous system. There can be inflammation of muscles, inflammation in the heart in some cases. And the one complication that really we are quite concerned about is the idea of a super infection. Uh, and this is when another infection comes in, 
uh, on top of the flu uh, to con that, and that can cause quite a uh, severe um, course. Now, how would you describe the transmission process of the flu? How contagious is it for most people out there versus how contagious might it be um, or what might the transmission concerns be for someone who's living with PI? Well, so this is a virus that is a respiratory virus, and it's transmitted through sneezing and coughing and, and contact with um, surfaces that, that have been uh, where the virus has been spread to. You can get it directly by being coughed on or sneezed on or coming into contact and touching surfaces that have been coughed or sneezed on and then touching your, your face, namely your eyes or your mouth or your nose. Um, it, it, is a, uh, you know, it is a quite contagious uh, uh, virus for the general population, depending on you know, what studies you've looked at, but it's been studied in, um, with household transmission and within schools. Um, and it is uh, something that definitely is, is easily transmitted in, in these uh, manners. And now as far as the primary immune deficient population, I think the, the greatest concern here isn't necessarily whether it's more contagious, but rather the disease course and the, the risk of it potentially becoming more severe. Flu can cause a spectrum of symptoms from a um, more mild course to a more severe course that can require uh, an inpatient hospitalization. The individuals that are at higher risk for this more severe course include, include the young or the old over 65 or under five years of age. Um, uh, pregnant women, but also um, individuals that have um, a suppressed immune system, and this would include those with with um, PI. Perfect. Well, that gives us a, a little bit of a grounding in terms of you know what it is and uh, and how one might get it. Uh, but in terms of trying to avoid getting it, can you talk a little bit uh, aside from vaccination, which we'll get into in a moment? Uh, what are some of the best ways to prevent uh, uh, getting flu and, of course, uh, mitigating its complications uh, if one were, in fact, uh, to get it or think that you were to get it? Right. Well, this is a particularly interesting question now that we have, um, you know, uh, so many different approaches to, to avoid uh, viral infections. But the, you know, the classic uh, guidance that we would give in any flu season would be to basically avoid um, those who are sick and stay home if you are sick so that you can help to not spread the virus. Uh, try not to touch your face, especially your eyes, nose, and mouth. These are uh, areas where we know the virus can be transmitted. You want to routinely uh, clean frequently touched surfaces. So this could be doorknobs or keyboards that are shared, phones. This is how you can try to um, remove the any virus that may have been uh, left on those surfaces. And you want to make sure that your workplace and your home really has an adequate supply of, of you know, cleaning reagents, soap, um, alcohol-based hand rubs, disposable wipes, things that can help you to basically limit any um, exposure to any virus uh, particles that could be on surfaces or, or on hands. Well, it sounds like a lot of uh, common sense uh, precautions there and, and ones that um, a lot of listeners are, are, have certainly uh, been hearing about uh, over the uh, the last uh, uh, seven months or so for other reasons. But aside from those, you know, very basic day-to-day -day precautions that you can uh, uh, really engage with, can you talk a little bit about uh, the flu uh, vaccinations? We know that um, a big part of trying to uh, to manage uh, you know the the flu season nationally um, are vaccines. Can you talk a little bit about 
what types of vaccines are available, uh, why it is important to get one, uh, especially, you know, once a year, as I believe is the recommendation. Um, and then also with your patients in general, uh, is there a specific time of the year that's best to get the vaccination, as in right when it becomes available, midway through the season, or maybe waiting a little bit longer? Uh, all the vaccine questions rolled up all into one. <laughs> okay, well, uh, let me start by basically talking about the two sort of major categories of vaccines that exist. So it's important to recognize there are a number of different vaccines for the flu every year. So um, the first sort of breakdown is uh, live attenuated um, versus um, an inactivated or dead vaccine. So there is typically one um, live attenuated vaccine, which means it has live virus that's been passaged in the lab so that it is less infectious. However, it does have a theoretical risk, particularly in patients with or some types of primary immune deficiency. So it's not typically the vaccine that we would recommend for most PI patients. So that leaves us with the um, inactivated vaccines. And this is the largest group of vaccines and the ones that are most commonly administered. Um, so the typical vaccine is what's known as the quadrivalent flu vaccine. It's called, it's called quadrivalent because it has four um, different flu viruses in it. So the way the flu virus works is we look to see what is the, um, which viruses are spreading that year uh, in other uh, parts of the world, and then to try to predict what is going to affect our part of the world. And so they put the four viruses that they think are, four flu viruses that they think are going to be the ones most likely to affect us. And um, then there's a couple of flavors of, of, of this virus. So there is, there's the conventional vaccine, and then there's also the, um, there's also a higher dose vaccine and a vaccine with an added adjuvant. So this high dose vaccine has about four times the antigen in it. So it's designed to, and it's, and it's um, targeted to older um, people age 65 and older to uh, help to give their immune system a little more of a push to, um, to make a strong immune response against the flu. And there is going with that also, which is um, approved for 65 and older is a vaccine that has an adjuvant uh, and it works with a similar concept. Instead of having more antigen, what it has is an additional part of the vaccine that has been added there to help boost the immune response uh, to the vaccine. And so what I recommend is, is um, for patients with PI to discuss with their doctor which vaccine is um, specifically recommended for them. Uh, I think you also asked, well, what time of year should you get it? Uh, this is a very timely podcast being re recorded in October. This is the best time of year to get the vaccine. Uh, you want to get it um, you know, before the, um, these uh, flu cases um, rise, but not, but not necessarily too soon. Uh, we sometimes there are concerned that if someone gets a vaccine, say in the middle of the summer, gets their flu vaccine, it may the effects may wane um, a bit before flu season. At least in um, individuals with um, immune systems that are um, maybe not um, as robust, such as those that are 65 and older, and potentially some patients with uh, PI. So you want to really try to get it. October is a good time to get it. Uh, but the other point is, it's better to get it than, than to not get it. So if, you know, life um, deals you uh, situations where you can't get it in October, that doesn't mean you shouldn't get it. Uh, you, you should try to get it as soon as you can. Now, that's enormously uh, helpful. And I think that uh, our listening audience will appreciate that. Uh, if I can just continue on with a couple of more vaccine-related questions, uh, because at IDF, we do receive a lot of questions about this uh, around this time of the year. Um, 
IDF represents and uh, you and your colleagues treat uh, you know, a wide variety of people with PI, uh, people who have uh, antibody deficiencies, people who have T-cell issues, complement, uh, phagocyte, a whole host of different flavors of primary immunodeficiency. Besides what I think is probably the general uh, uh, suggestion, which is for you know, everyone to talk with their physician about uh, the specifics of their condition and the flu vaccine, can you talk a little bit about, especially with those with an antibody deficiency, um, you know, what they might expect out of the uh, the flu vaccine, you know, for example, if you do not, uh, you know, produce uh, immunoglobulin naturally, uh, you know, you're not necessarily maybe going to have the same reaction to the vaccine as someone else might, you know, but might there still be benefit? Can you just talk us through with some of the big groups of primary immunodeficiency patients, uh, what you might expect with them getting uh, the vaccine? And if they're maybe on the fence about it, how you talk to those that you see? Well, this is obviously a very, very important question for the uh, PI uh, patients. And what I typically explain is that when you have an immune response, antibodies are one component of it. There's another very important component of the adaptive immune response, that part of the immune response that it causes immune memory. It's what um, allows you to be vaccinated and then have a robust immune response upon secondary uh, exposure to what you were vaccinated against. And that, so T cells are part of this secondary immune response. And in patients that have antibody deficiency, they may have preserved or even quite normal function of their T cells. And if that is the case, um, they will likely benefit from the vaccine because what the vaccine will do is stimulate T cell responses as well as antibody responses. So even if you can't make antibodies to the vaccine, you can make T cells and memory T cells that could be very important for protecting you against a viral infection. In fact, the, uh, the efficacy of the flu vaccine has been tested in patients with um, primary antibody deficiency, including patients with CVID. And they've found that there are detectable T cell responses that occur after getting this vaccine. So it's, it is going to stimulate parts of your immune system, even if you have antibody deficiency. Well, I think that that is incredibly important for our community to hear uh, just because of the the understanding uh, and maybe the communication that they've had with their care teams uh, you know about the abilities of their immune system. Um, so with all that said, are there any diagnoses under the umbrella of primary immunodeficiency for which a killed flu vaccine uh, would be contraindicated? I would say uh, the only contraindication or, or the only concern that there ever really was with the inactivated vaccine was with those who had egg allergies. And that's um, been mostly reduced by the ability or by there being some vaccines that don't contain egg, as well as the, the uh, CDC recommendation of administering these vaccines in a doctor's office with observation. The inactivated or dead vaccine um, contains no live virus, and it is not able to cause an infection in anyone, including those that are um, immunocompromised. Perfect. Well, uh, I, I think that we have uh, exhausted this, uh, you know, uh, 101 level of uh, discussing uh, the flu vaccine. So I think that this is a great uh, point uh, to take a break. Uh, so Dr. Maglione, thank you so much for that. We're going to take uh, a quick break here, and then we will reconvene in just a few moments. Thank you. 
No matter where you are along your journey, IDF wants to help you manage living with primary immunodeficiency, or PI. As a community-empowered organization, IDF can provide you with support, education, and resources to help you cope with a wide variety of issues related to PI, including physical and mental health, insurance, and relationships. For more information, please visit www.primaryimmune.org. Welcome back. My guest, Dr. P.J. Maglione, is sharing helpful tips and tricks to help keep you safe this flu season. Now that we've talked a bit about symptoms and prevention of the flu, let's talk about navigating flu season a bit more, including how to deal with it as we also deal with the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Now, Dr. Maglione, you've talked a bit about the flu symptoms. Can you tell us about how people might differentiate what is the flu versus what might be COVID symptoms? What might people want to be on the lookout for, and how might their approach change in terms of talking with their doctors about this? Well, John, this is going to be a very challenging um, question and issue um, for this particular flu season, and, and um, it's a difficult one to answer, actually. Um, I can speak in, with some you know, generalities, but the important thing to recognize is that both um, influenza and COVID-19 cause a wide spectrum of, of, of symptoms and severity. And so it's going to be challenging to differentiate to the two. Um, I can give you some you know, general rules and general things that we think about. Um, for example, it's been pretty well established that uh, COVID is uh, more likely to cause a severe course. Um, so while influenza can certainly cause a, a severe course, it does appear that the mortality and the hospitalization rate of COVID-19 is higher. But of course, both uh, infections um, can be um, quite asymptomatic as well in certain individuals. So that is a challenge. Um, COVID-19 has this quite um, unique uh, loss of, of taste and smell that has been something that really stood out as we learn more about COVID-19. And that could be a tool that your uh, physician could use to help um, raise suspicion of COVID-19 older flu. Um, there's some other aspects about the, uh, the, the two infections that, that differentiate them. Flu tends to come on a bit faster, um, symptoms typically within four days upon infection, whereas COVID uh, actually uh, is a little more of, of a slow burn where we expect after infection symptoms might take five or more days. Um, it can take as long as 14 days. And that's been what it's been a real challenge of, of in terms of the measures that have been put in place to limit um, the spread of the virus that causes COVID-19. Uh, it's challenging because of this uh, long um, sort of course of disease. And also COVID appears to be contagious longer, uh, probably 10 days since the onset of symptoms as opposed to a few days for, for influenza. Um, and there's another piece to this that you can get from history as a physician is this concept of super spreader events. This is something that uh, you hear a lot in the news regarding COVID-19. It's really quite characteristic or more characteristic of COVID-19 than it is flu. You don't typically hear about influenza super spreader events, although you know, the possibility is there. It seems much more typical of, of COVID-19. But the real tool that you know, clinicians are going to have to use to differentiate the two are going to be diagnostic tests. And there are PCR-based and other um, uh, antibody-based and, and, and other tests, antigen tests that can be used to differentiate and to help diagnose. And that might be very important this particular season in order to understand uh, what type of infection you have, because both have a lot of overlapping symptoms. Well, in terms of the testing, and this is, I think, uh, 
a consideration for influenza tests as well as COVID. If you have someone who has an antibody deficiency and may be on immunoglobulin replacement therapy, are there any uh, sort of keywords or key concepts to help them to navigate when a test such as you might get at a minute clinic or the equivalent there, uh, are there are there ones that they are going to want to uh, throw their hands up and say, which test is this? Because I might not respond properly. Uh, anything along those lines in terms of, again, being immunocompromised and maybe being on an antibody replacement, uh, you know, uh, as a complication for testing. Yes, John, thank you for um, bringing up this point. It is um, very important that patients with PI, particularly those who have antibody um, defects um, and inability to make antibody responses optimally and also could be on immunoglobulin replacement therapy, that the interpretation of antibody tests are going to be affected by this. And so, yes, uh, this is something that should be discussed with the um, with whoever is sending the test, explaining to them um, your diagnosis, your treatment, the potential effects on an antibody-based test. Um, and so depending on um, the individual patient, this may not be the test to send. Well, uh, speaking of immunoglobulin uh, and uh, those who have immunoglobulin as part of their uh, regular uh, treatment plan, with the changing and evolving nature of the seasonal flu strains, can you talk at all about the possibilities but also the limitations of immunoglobulin replacement therapy uh, to possibly affect, uh, decrease uh, their flu risk or decrease the severity of the infection? Uh, sure, John. Uh, this this is um, an important question to the PI patients for sure. And um, what I would first stress is that it is important to get vaccinated. Uh, we do not expect uh, antibodies to be present to, to the new seasonal flu every year. So um, you cannot rely on the immunoglobulin replacement therapy. It should be, um, you know, you should be getting the vaccine every year. Um, but there is some components to this and components to the immunoglobulin replacement that could be helpful for a patient with PI. Um, as I mentioned earlier in, in this um, discussion, that there is uh, one of the major concerns uh, about um, severe flu is super infection. And this is infection with another microbe on top of influenza. Now, this can often be a bacterial infection, a bacterial superinfection, and one of the more common causes of bacterial pneumonia is uh, pneumococcus or streptococcus pneumoniae. Uh, and now, in immunoglobulin replacement um, products, there is uh, high levels of antibodies against pneumococcus present there, and we think that these antibodies do mediate protection. They can at least reduce the severity of infection, and this is why um, we give pneumococcal vaccines to the general population to do this. And and patients with, um, who are receiving immunoglobulin replacement therapy benefit from these antibodies, most likely. So I would think that the immunoglobulin replacement therapy certainly has the potential benefit of limiting the severity of uh, bacterial superinfections, particularly with some bacteria like, like streptococcus pneumoniae, for which there are antibodies in the, um, in the immunoglobulin replacement products. That is enormously helpful. Um, now, let's say, hypothetically speaking, don't want this to happen, but you know, someone gets their flu vaccine and they've been careful. But you know, these things do happen, and uh, you know, a patient, let's say one of yours, um, you know, begins to exhibit symptoms uh, which might be the flu, uh, and of course, they might be concerned that it's COVID as well. Um, 
with either you or any other member of their care team, what, what are the steps that one should take? What are the points at which one might escalate, you know, their, uh, uh, their connection with their care team? Um, you know, if they do start to see these flu or COVID-like symptoms uh, so that they can be wise about staying out of medical facilities, if at all possible, uh, but also taking it seriously. How do you counsel, um, you know, the patients that you see? when it comes to navigating this very tricky and very scary, I think, uh, you know, onset of symptoms, uh, knowing that it's, you know, it's tough to tell what's what and how severe it might be. I think, yes, John. Um, so what I'll um, kind of explain what I do for my patients. And the first thing is I would encourage um, the patient to, to let me know if there is uh, uh, flu-like symptoms or concern for flu or contacts with flu. Um, and the reason for this isn't to, to sound alarmist or, or to make anyone more nervous, but there are actually antiviral medications that are available to limit the severity of influenza infection. And these antiviral agents actually seem to work most effectively during the first two days or the first, you know, 48 hours or so of, of the infection. And so the sooner you know about this, the sooner these antivirals are prescribed, uh, the more likely they are to be effective. So that is the main point of why it is so important to stay in, in the loop with your doctor about these potential symptoms. Um, you know, the main recommendations we would make is to, number one, stay home to help limit the spread of this infection, um, to, um, you know, get your rest, uh, get fluids. Um, you know, it's important to stay, you know, hydrated. And then these antiviral medications are potentially um, helpful as well. Uh, most uh, potent in the first 48 hours, but also potentially uh, helpful even after that. So you should definitely have a discussion with your doctor because these are um, medications like, uh, like a Tamiflu that are prescribed. And so you need a prescription to uh, get these medications. And so your doctor can uh, prescribe that for you. Well, uh, for the individual case, I think that is uh, incredibly helpful and uh, incredibly well taken uh, uh, by even those of us uh, who have been quite lucky in recent years and, and not had the flu. And a uh, good reminder to all of us uh, as to you know where to go at what point uh, you know with our care teams. Now I'd like to switch a little bit from kind of the individual to the global. Uh, the flu season that we are on the brink of and going to be experiencing here in the U.S. Uh, you know is not necessarily the first, uh, you know, in, in the world of this kind of current annual flu season. Has there been any um, uh, lessons learned from other parts of the world where uh, their flu season has uh, preceded ours about how they have done in general uh, versus how they've done with dealing with the flu and COVID at the same time? Yes, John. And I would say the, that the results are encouraging. So, the Southern Hemisphere has already been through its flu season for uh, 2020 because it's already had its winter when we were having our summer up here in the Northern Hemisphere. And countries like Australia and countries in South America have reported a more mild uh, flu season. So it seems that the precautions and the measures that are taken, that are being taken currently uh, to limit um, you know, the spread of uh, COVID-19 have actually had effects also on influenza and helped to limit its transmission as well. Well, I think that that is a perfect 
point to end on. We've talked about uh, the theoretical, the practical, uh, the, the, the individual to the global. Uh, and so, uh, Dr. Maglion, thank you so much for taking uh, the time out of your day uh, to help us better understand uh, the flu, navigating the flu season, and uh, everything else that we have to deal with as uh, people who live with or care for uh, people with primary immunodeficiencies. And John, thank you so much for bringing me on. It was a real pleasure to talk with you. Well, and many thanks to all of our listeners here uh, for being with us today as well. We hope that you'll join us for more podcast episodes like this one in the future as we explore uh, the topics that mean the most to you. Until then, all of us here at IDF want to wish you good health and strength. And remember, you're never alone. There's always people out there who want to help. We all just have to find each other. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation. If you like our show and want to learn more, please subscribe to this podcast so future episodes will be sent to your device automatically. And leave us a review on iTunes so others will discover this podcast. To learn more about primary immunodeficiency and the PI community, please visit the IDF website at www.primaryimmune.org. And if you have a question you would like answered, email us at info at primaryimmune.org. Thanks for tuning in.